And now, the brilliance of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Whether I see a statue that may be something that I would fully disagree with, like Adolf Hitler, maybe a statue of Satan himself, I would not want to say take it down. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast. As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon, KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Halenville, New York, WLPP, Rochester, New York, WRFZ. New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today, well, you got me again. I'm Nicole Sandler. I host the Nicole Sandler Show based at nicolesandler.com. And well, Brad and Desi are having a bit of a construction emergency. They're tearing up the the, the, the ground around their studio. And from what I understand, the jackhammers are particularly loud today. So we're not sure how long this is going to go on, but um, yeah, I'm here. You got me. Uh, so thank you for joining me. We'll hold the fort down until they can get back to work. Uh, we got a good show for you today, you know, with all the, the fighting in Congress over can we afford this and cut the, you know, the, too much money for infrastructure. I once again went to my go-to person on all things money-related, and that's Stephanie Kelton. She's the author of a fabulous book called The Deficit Myth that tells us we can indeed have nice things, but these members of Congress need to read the book. So anyway, a little later in the hour, we'll have Stephanie Kelton here. We've got a new Green News report that thankfully (laughs) Pratt and Desi were able to knock out uh, last night before the construction started. And as usual, we'll start with the news. Beginning with today, you might be hearing this program later, but when I'm recording it, today is May 25th. It was one year ago today that George Floyd, an unarmed black man, was killed, murdered, according to a jury in Minnesota, by a now former Minneapolis police officer. The murder of George Floyd captured on video by a teenager, inflamed the masses and set off months of protests. While marches and other commemorations are planned in Minneapolis and around the world, the Floyd family begins the day visiting Congress before heading over to the White House at President Biden's invitation. 
The president's goal was for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2021 to be ready for his signature by now, but they're not quite there yet. All parties involved agree that they'd rather get it right than fast. The big sticking point remains qualified immunity for police, which effectively protects them from any personal liability unless they've been determined to have violated what the court defines as an individual's, quote, clearly established statutory or constitutional rights. On Monday, Karen Bass, the lead House negotiator, and the two lead Senate negotiators, Democrat Cory Booker and Republican Tim Scott, released a statement saying that they're making progress toward a compromise and remain optimistic about the prospects of achieving that goal. The House is already on a three-week break, and the Senate leaves at the end of the week, but there's still a lot of work to be done, not only on the policing overhaul, but on getting infrastructure done, too. Senate Republicans meeting Tuesday to decide whether to counter the White House's latest proposal to lower the total cost to $1.7 trillion, down from 2.4. But even if they do, the two sides are still about $1.5 trillion apart in new spending after a month of talks and are nowhere near deciding how to pay for it. The Democrats are now considering passing it through reconciliation, where they'd need only 50 votes and no Republican support. And then there's also the matter of a January 6th commission, which should be a no-brainer. But it appears that Mitch McConnell will lead the Republicans in the first filibuster fight of the year over creating a bipartisan commission to probe the attack on the Capitol. Amazing. Well, here we go again. Hurricane season kicks off a week from today, but there have already been two named storms with the number and scope of the storms seemingly increasing year after year, President Biden announced Monday that he would double government spending to help communities prepare for the storms and other extreme weather events. Biden said NASA would launch an effort to gather more sophisticated climate data. White House National Climate Advisor Gina McCarthy said that the president is demonstrating to Americans that the federal government is committed to responding to ways in which the climate has changed. The European Union on Monday barred European airlines from flying over Belarus and initiated the process of banning Belarusian planes from European airspace. The EU, with the support of President Biden, also demanded that Belarus release dissident journalist Roman Protasevich, who was detained after Belarus forced down the Ryanair flight he was taking from Greece to Lithuania. EU leaders referred to the incident as a state hijacking and are expressing outrage. Even before this hijacking, the EU had imposed sanctions on the president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, along with some of his associates. They also vowed to expand the sanctions by adding additional listings of pensions and entities as soon as possible. The COVID conundrum continues. Scientists investigating the origin of COVID-19 have zeroed in on previously overlooked data and are now taking another look at the idea that it came from the lab at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, once dismissed as a conspiracy theory. Meanwhile, young people in the United States, that's 24 and under, are now lagging in vaccinations. U.S. health officials are warning that while young people may be at lower risk of dying from COVID-19, they could still face long-term effects. And on Tuesday morning, 
Moderna announced that its studies show that its COVID-19 vaccine is 100% effective at stopping infection in kids aged 12 to 17. Despite the progress we're making here, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control warned that because of the virus situation in Japan, even fully vaccinated people should avoid all travel to the country. The Japanese government was quick to point out that the warning is not related to the participation of the U.S. Olympics team. Really? All right. Well, now that Donald Trump is out of office and the adults are back in charge, we've been waiting for the long-promised transparency. But the Justice Department on Monday released part of a memo written in 2019 to justify not charging the then-president with obstructing justice in connection with Robert Mueller's investigation. U.S. District Judge Amy Berman Jackson earlier this month had issued an opinion harshly criticizing former Attorney General Bill Barr and his Justice Department, saying she read the document and found that Barr had been disingenuous when he cited the memo as critical in his determination that Trump had broken no laws. So Jackson ordered the document's release. But Justice Department lawyers asked the judge to keep the rest of the document secret pending an appeal of her ruling, acknowledging that, quote, its briefs could have been clearer and said the DOJ, quote, deeply regrets the confusion that caused. Well, I'm confused about why the Biden Justice Department would work so hard to keep Trump's Justice Department secrets secret. And on a related note, it's been two years since Don McGahn, the former White House counsel to Trump, was subpoenaed to testify about allegations of obstruction of justice, as depicted in the Mueller report. Well, now it's nailed down. McGahn will testify before a House committee next week. Stay tuned. Meanwhile, Trump's buddy, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, is apparently looking out for him. On Monday, DeSantis signed a law that fines social media companies for permanently banning political candidates in the state. Hmm. The law, a direct response to Facebook and Twitter suspensions of the former guy from their platforms, also makes it easier for Floridians to sue the companies. This is the first state law that regulates how tech companies moderate speech. The law makes it illegal for a social media company to ban any candidate for state office for more than 14 days. It imposes a $250,000 daily fine for violations and requires companies to state clearly why they decide to remove or leave up content. A legal challenge is expected. Texas apparently felt the need to step it up in its quest to be named the worst state in the union. Legislators there passed a new law allowing people to carry handguns without a license or the background check and training that go with it. Seriously, the Republican-dominated legislature approved the measure Monday, sending it to Governor Greg Abbott, who said he will sign it despite the objections of law enforcement groups who say it will endanger the public and police. Gun control groups obviously also oppose the measure, noting the state's recent history of mass shootings, including those at an El Paso Walmart, a church in Sutherland Springs, and a high school outside Houston. Politics makes <clears throat> strange bedfellows. So on Tuesday, 
A bipartisan group of senators will launch the Senate Financial Innovation Caucus. Led by Cynthia Loomis, Republican of Wyoming, and Kirsten Sinema, alleged Democrat of Arizona. Also joining the caucus are Democrat <clears throat> John Hickenlooper, along with Republicans Tim Scott, Marsha Blackburn, Mike Braun, and Bill Cassidy. Ugh, where's Joe Manchin? And finally, because Amazon isn't big enough, the behemoth is nearing a deal to buy the Hollywood studio MGM Holdings for almost $9 billion. A deal could be announced as soon as Tuesday. Before we break, a few other updates on some stories we've been following. First of all, Marjorie Taylor Greene stepped in it again. And this time, it only took four days longer than it should have. But finally, Republican leadership is calling her out. On Friday, you already know, she let loose with this nonsense where people were told to wear a gold star and they were definitely treated like second-class citizens, so much so that they were put in trains and taken to gas chambers in Nazi Germany. And this is exactly the type of abuse that Nancy Pelosi is talking about. No, it, it is not exactly. In fact, it's not even remotely the same. Again, um, she came under a lot of criticism for that, but not from Republican leadership. They seem to have no problem with her bigotry and lack of sensibility. They remained silent on this matter until Tuesday morning when, oops, she did it again. Yep, Marjorie Taylor Greene went on a Twitter tear this morning, but it appears that the tweet that finally pushed Kevin McCarthy over the top was this one. It read, quote, Vac- I, I, I want to try to do her voice. Vaccinated employees get a vacation logo, just like the Nazis forced Jewish people to wear a gold star. Vaccine passports and, max- and mask mandates create discrimination against unvaxxed people who trust their immune systems to a virus that is 99% survivable. And she linked to a news story about a Tennessee supermarket chain and their decision to include a special logo on the name badges of employees who had been vaccinated. But that's not all. Another video surfaced today from before Marjorie Taylor Greene was elected to Congress. It was 2020, and she was speaking at a county commission meeting where she lives in Georgia. And she actually said this. We're seeing situations where Christopher Columbus, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, all kinds of statues are being attacked. And it seems to be just a an effort to take down history. (laughs) And whether I see a statue that may be something that I would fully disagree with, like Adolf Hitler, Uh. maybe a statue of Satan himself. Oh, I would not want to say, take it down. But again, it's so that I could tell my children and teach others about who these people are. Sure. Because you can't teach anybody about who Hitler was or Satan allegedly is without a statue (laughs) to honor them. Of course, I should have known that. So what kind of response did today's Twitter outburst from Marjorie Taylor Greene elicit from Kevin McCarthy? Well, he issued a statement in which he called the Holocaust, quote, the greatest atrocity committed in history. Good. He condemned Green's analogy on behalf of the House Republican Caucus. And he's just, 
He can't help himself, I guess, because this is the rest of his statement. He said, quote, Marjorie is wrong in her intentional decision to compare the horrors of the Holocaust with wearing masks is appalling. That's fine. It's what he said next that's problematic. Quote, at a time when the Jewish people face increased violence and threats, anti-Semitism is on the rise in the Democrat Party? What? No, that's coming from your side of the aisle, buddy, and is completely ignored by Speaker Pelosi. Americans must stand together to defeat anti-Semitism in any attempt to diminish the history of the Holocaust. Okay, Kevin, then stop pointing fingers at people who aren't guilty and hold your caucus accountable. By the way, no elected Democrats, recently at least, have made any similar comparison, and prominent party leaders have condemned a spate of anti-Semitic attacks. Democrats are increasingly split on how to approach U.S. policy toward Israel, but leaders on both sides of the issue have denounced anti-Semitism. Opposite world, indeed. I think it's where she lives. Here's an update on the uh, move towards a January 6th commission. Now there are two. Senator Lisa Murkowski now backs the House-passed bill for a bipartisan January 6th commission. Senator Mitt Romney said he'll support it with a few changes. And it's still an uphill battle to get eight more. But how's this for a twist? Uh, Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema just put out a statement pressuring their Republican colleagues to support it. (laughs) I'm not holding my breath. And, oh, the White House says that today, that would be March 25th, the United States will reach the marker of 50% of adults fully vaccinated. Now, that's something to celebrate. We'll take a quick time out, come back on the other side and check in with Brad and Desi for the latest Green News Report. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is supporting you and the things that you care about. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. Right now, as much as ever. If you choose to support us, you can do it really easily, safely, and quickly via brandblog.com donate. From Desi Doyen and myself... Thank you. I'm Nicole Sandler, guest hosting today for Brad and Desi, who are sidelined because of construction outside of their studio. But thankfully, they were able to knock out one more green news report before the construction began. So take it away, Brad and Desi. We all know that these storms are coming. And uh, we're going to be prepared. We have to be ready. Biden doubles FEMA disaster funding as NOAA forecasts another intense hurricane season. U.S. renewable energy deployment hits record pace in 2021. Plus, we're not interested as long as it's not anything about tax increases. Republicans reject corporate tax increases to fund major infrastructure upgrades. All of that obstructionism and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. You got the fossil fuel mafia coming after you, man. Don't I? 
I know it. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, it's kind of nice to have a president who realizes that hurricane season is coming and realizes we should do something about it in advance. (laughs) Indeed it is. And yes, buckle up. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration forecasts that the 2021 Atlantic hurricane season, which starts June 1st, will again be busier than normal, but said it is unlikely to be as severe as the record-shattering season in 2020. We'll see. With the Atlantic hurricane season, looming, President Biden on Monday announced he is doubling FEMA's emergency spending budget. Biden is making $1 billion available to states, territories, and tribes for pre-disaster mitigation and preparation for hurricanes and other extreme weather events like floods and wildfires. The order also directs NASA to develop next-generation climate data systems to better track how climate change is impacting communities. Biden announced the new funding at FEMA headquarters in Washington. We have to be ready. When disaster strikes, uh, we have to be there to protect and also help people recover. And so it's about not about red states and blue states. You all know that. It's about having people's backs in the toughest moments that they face. Yeah, but does he have enough paper towels to throw at the victims? FEMA's advanced preparation matters, not just to reduce the costs of emergency response, but also long-term dislocation of residents. A new study has found that globally in 2020, more than 40 million people were pushed out of their homes, even amid a pandemic, fleeing storms, floods, wildfires, and in some cases, conflict. The annual report from the European nonprofit Internal Displacement Monitoring Center said that the 40 million displaced globally in 2020 was the largest number in more than a decade. The report underscores why the U.S. Defense Department calls the destabilizing effects of man-made climate change a security threat multiplier. Here in the U.S., the White House and congressional Republicans remain far apart on negotiations for Biden's popular American jobs plan to repair and upgrade the nation's crumbling infrastructure. What a surprise. The White House on Friday offered to cut nearly a quarter off of his original $2.25 trillion proposal, cutting funds for research, development and U.S. manufacturing. But Politico reports Republicans have barely budged from their $568 billion counterproposal and rejected. Biden's plan to lift corporate tax rates to fund the investments. Instead, Republicans want user fees like tolls, requiring working Americans to pay to build the infrastructure and then pay again to use it. But the administration says corporations are among the largest benefactors of transportation infrastructure and should pay their fair share. As Biden explained in a recent press conference, if everything is paid for by a user fee, well, then, you know, the burden falls on working class folks who are uh, who are having trouble. What happened to the Republicans' plan to become the populist party looking out for the little guy? Well, a new Data for Progress poll found that 58 percent of voters support Democrats going it alone to pass the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan together using budget reconciliation, which allows for a simple majority vote. Good. 
They're wasting time waiting for Republicans. After a new EPA report last week warned that climate change is already costing the U.S. billions every year in more frequent and intense extreme weather disasters, Biden also issued a new executive order requiring federal agencies to develop a comprehensive climate risk assessment and strategy to prepare for climate-related financial shocks in sectors that they regulate. The order focuses on climate impacts that pose major risks for home prices, investments, pensions, and banking, and more in ways that could destabilize major sectors of the economy. And finally, deployment of clean energy in the U.S. in 2021 is already far exceeding the pace of last year's record rate. According to the American Clean Power Association, 13 new wind projects, 15 new solar projects, and two battery storage projects, all utility scale, became operational during the first three months of 2021, a 40 percent increase over the same period last year before the pandemic shutdown. Oh, just wait for Donald Trump to start taking credit for that too. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. All I need In a moment, we'll check in with modern monetary theory expert, author of The Deficit Myth, economist Stephanie Kelton. You want to hear what she has to say. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Desi Doyen of the Green News Report and the broadcast. Did you know we are completely listener supported and free of corporate and political influence? You can help us stay 100% independent over your public airwaves by signing up for a monthly subscription of any amount you like. Just go to bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. We're back on the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today, while Brad and Desi are (laughs) dealing with loud construction around their studio. It happens. Anyway, it gives me an excuse to share my latest conversation with economist, author, and professor Stephanie Kelton. Since my grasp of economics is mostly limited to being really good at spending money, Stephanie Kelton explains modern monetary theory in a way that even I can understand. And it's not just modern monetary theory. I don't want to scare you off, but she answers questions about the PAYGO process and what they're all fighting over in Congress. On the line with us right now is Stephanie Kelton. She is an economist, a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University in New York, and author of The Deficit Myth, which is now available as a paperback. Anything new in the paperback? 
Yeah, I wrote a new introduction to kind of situate the book in the COVID and with luck post-COVID moments. So paperback came out in March of this year. Uh, The hardback came out in June of last year. So just as COVID was really ravaging uh, much of the world. And so here we are. So I did write an updated introduction. Great. And and it, it, it was never more important, I think, than it is right now as we're having these discussions and maybe disagreements over the money that Joe Biden wants to spend to get our country back on track. So, Stephanie Kelton, first thing I have to ask you is um, your thoughts on the Biden presidency a hundred and a few days in. Well, I, you know, I'm I think like many uh, I'm sitting here wearing my Sanders Institute sweatshirt. It's very cozy. I had a a long drive back from New York this morning. I came home and got cozy. Uh, I I think like many progressives, I have been pleasantly surprised by much of what has come out of the administration. I will say, starting with the one point nine trillion dollar covid rescue package. Um, You know, they did not lose their nerve. And remember that that bill came on the heels of a nine hundred billion dollar package that Democrats and Republicans passed together in December of last year. So here we were just three months later, kicking out a one point nine trillion dollar relief package, coming back in with added support from the federal government for unemployment compensation, a a good extension there. Uh, Those fourteen hundred dollar checks, we could talk about whether uh, they should have been two thousand dollar checks. But there was a lot of good stuff. Finally, money for state and local governments. And so that was all encouraging. And then to have them come back, have President Biden come back on the heels of that package and ask for four point one trillion more. Uh, And there's a lot of good stuff in there as well. Now, again, progressives, uh, myself included, will argue that there are shortcomings. There's not enough in the climate uh, investment space. And we could, you know, we could debate parts of the package for sure. But I think that, you know, there are very, very good signs in what's been put forward. And then now we have to find out how much of it can actually pass. Right. And and uh, and there's more coming, too. And, and the thing is, what's so galling, uh, but we expected it, basically, is uh, during the last four years when the, the former guy was in office, they spent an inordinate amount of money. They spent uh, a lot doing tax givebacks to the wealthiest among us, this big tax package that cost uh, $2 trillion that normal people like me never saw any benefit from. It increased the deficit, something that Republicans tend to always scream about when there's a Democrat in the White House. When there's a Republican in the White House, they seem to not care. Obviously, they didn't uh, during the, the Trump years. Now they're screaming deficit again. Um, this is hypocrisy at its finest, but it's typical for them. Um, why are they why are they raising these red flags now? Because they think it's a vulnerability for Democrats. And to some extent it is. And, uh, you know, it's got me very much on edge uh, because I don't want to watch Democrats continue to play, you know, Charlie Brown to Lucy in the football. And they are aware, many of them, that this is exactly what has happened to them over the course of decades. Uh, and so, you know, the, the deficit gets weaponized. And what Republicans are doing now is as hypocritical as it is pretty 
predictable. Mm-hmm. Of course, they were going to do this. And as you said, you know, when when you have the reins of power, when you have the House, when you have the Senate, when you have the White House and you can pass your agenda, Republicans are not bashful. They are not fearful. They do not care about the deficit in any real sense of the word. They do not care. They passed their agenda. They delivered on these huge tax breaks that, as you said, uh, disproportionately benefited people at the very top. Corporations uh, had a windfall and people at the very top of the income distribution enjoyed a windfall. And this is the point that I think Democrats need to hammer home and they don't do it enough. What Democrats need to do is to make it clear to the American people that every deficit is good for someone. Don't run away from this word deficit. All of this stuff that the administration is trying to do now, paying for the $4.1 trillion, offsetting all the spending with proposed tax increases, many of which will never happen. The votes simply are not there. But the rhetoric that Democrats are putting out there, including the president, is that this is fiscally responsible because you see the way we want to spend money now is in a way that won't increase the deficit. Now ask yourself, would Republicans play that game if they were, when they are in control, do they say we want to pass our agenda, but we really don't want to add to the deficit. So we're going to try to fully pay for everything. Of course they don't. They take advantage. And when I say every deficit, it is good for someone. This is what I mean. The deficit so widely misunderstood. It is just the difference between two numbers. That's what it is. Okay. It's the difference between how many dollars the government spends into the economy each year and how many dollars they subtract back out, mostly through taxation. So this thing we call a government deficit is just another way of saying that the government is adding more than it is subtracting. So if they add a hundred dollars and they only subtract 90, We label that a government deficit, but we forget to remember that if they put 100 in and only take 90 back out, somebody gets 10. So when I say every deficit is good for someone, I mean it. In financial terms, the other side of their deficit lies a financial surplus in some other part of the economy. The question is for whom? Who's getting it? And for what? Are we using the deficit to make investments in critical infrastructure and R&D, fighting climate change, uh, paying for education, doing those sorts of things? Or are we using the deficit simply to deliver a windfall to people in our economy and society who least need the help? Every deficit is good for someone. Right. I'm going to give you a question out of left field that's probably going to frustrate you. But it's what is out there. We're in debt to China, for God's sake. Why are we spending money when we're in debt to China? Are we in debt to China? Well, look, China holds some U.S. government bonds. Japan holds some U.S. government bonds. Mm -hmm. The Canadians hold some, right? Uh, You might hold some. If you've got a pension, maybe some of your pension is invested in U.S. government securities. I don't like to think of these things as debt. I think it's the wrong word to use. And it's part of the problem that we have. You know, I keep saying to people that the U.S. does not have a fiscal crisis. We aren't facing a fiscal crisis. We don't have a deficit problem. We don't have a debt problem. What we have is a communications problem because we're using words like borrowing from China, going into debt, driving up the national debt to describe what's really quite benign in terms of the government's finances. There's nothing inherently rotten or dangerous uh, about what is being done, but we use words like debt to describe Mm -hmm. these financial instruments, U.S. treasuries, which are really just interest-bearing U.S. dollars. So what's happening, what happens with China, right? China 
has people that work and produce things that they don't keep and enjoy themselves. They don't consume themselves. They put them in these containers, they load them up on a ship and they send them to other parts of the world. Many of those goods come into the US. We have access to the cheap imports that come from China and other parts of the world. There are costs and benefits associated with that, right? To the extent that we allow that to cause uh, lead to offshoring, this is a problem. We have ways of dealing with that, but we have to recognize the benefits as well, right? Access to cheaper goods goods means the American consumer's dollar goes further. So we buy this stuff from China, we pay them in dollars. And then what China does is it trades in many of its dollars for an interest-bearing dollar called a U.S. Treasury. And we call that borrowing from China. And then we say we're in debt to China. How will we ever pay back China? What if China decides one day to turn off the borrowing spigot and no more dollars will come out and the U.S. won't be able to finance itself? You go, wait a minute. The U.S. government's the issuer of the dollar. We don't have to go to China or anybody else to get our own currency. So there's no financing dependent. We're not dependent on China for financing of our own spending. We can always cover our own bills. We have our own currency. And to pay back China, what does it mean? It means we take the Treasury back and we give them back non-interest bearing U.S. dollars. Right. That's all that's involved. Right. And so this is simply another right wing talking point to to ratchet up fear, to make you feel, oh, my God, we're saddling our kids with our debt to China. Yeah. And it also plays into fear of the other. Right. The foreign threat. It leans into some of that kind of often dangerous sort of rhetoric as well. It's a way it's a way to weaponize. What, again, I said is is quite a benign thing. It's a very safe financial instrument, the most important financial instrument in the global financial system are U.S. treasuries. That's that's what it is. Right. It's a safe asset. If you have some of them, they're part of your savings, they're part of your wealth. Right. And U.S. Treasury bonds are, are those are some of the safest investments out there because it's got the power of the U.S. government behind them. Right. Yeah, it's a risk-free asset, which means you might then uh, ask the follow-up question. Hey, wait a minute. Why is the U.S. government paying interest? Interest is a reward, right? There's supposed to be this risk-reward trade-off. You take risk, you get a reward. But the U.S. government is allowing people to hold a risk-free asset and then giving them interest on top of it. So what's really happening is that the federal government has chosen to provide a subsidy to bondholders. Interest is a subsidy to people who already have enough money to invest some of their dollars in U.S. Treasuries. Risk-free, but you get a reward. Uh, and, and so Republicans know this. They know what you're talking about, right? Is the stuff they're saying, the the red flags they're putting up, we can't afford it, it's too expensive, we're going to saddle our kids with our debt. Is that just their talking points to instill fear in the American people so the Democrats can't get their agenda through? Well, I, I'm, that might give them a little bit too much credit. I think that f- probably not that many uh, on either side of the aisle, frankly, understand monetary operations and the mechanics of government finance. I think a lot of members of Congress actually do believe that we borrow from China and that there is a real risk of China 
one day waking up and saying, all done, no more, no more lending to the United States. And that somehow mm-hmm. that would create real hardship for us. And by the way, the Congressional Budget Office, which Congress relies on to evaluate legislation, they produce the you know budget outlook and, and tell Congress, basically, your fiscal finances are not so good. And here's why. And in that narrative that the CBO puts out, they say things like, well, there's a risk that China and other foreign investors <laughs> might lose their appetite for you. So lawmakers hear this, they say, wow, you know, this is a a real risk that we face. So I think some of them do believe it, but to be sure, Republicans, um, you know, grab on to these narratives and use them to beat back policies that they don't like. And they know that the American people don't know better and that it will be a a kind of an easy sell to raise these flags about, you know, China and all. Oh, and the other one, of course, is that it's a burden on future generations. Why would we abuse our children and grandchildren in this way? So they use that rhetoric. They've been using it for decades, if not hundreds of years. And um, there aren't enough people out there trying to correct it. And so there's so much misinformation. And, you know, you can you can persuade someone who's sort of on the fence maybe about more ambitious spending. And then you come in and you say, yeah, but what about China? And what about the grandkids? And what about, and then, you know, somebody says, oh yeah, I don't want to do that. Right. That would be irresponsible and reckless. So I guess we'd have to deprive ourselves of better public services today in the name of protecting some, you know, imaginary future generation that's supposedly going to be harmed by these financial assets that they might one day inherit. Right. And part of the problem is, Stephanie Kelton, it's not only the Republicans saying this stuff. So all we have to do is go back to the last Democratic administration, the the uh, the Obama administration, and look at who he had as Treasury Secretary and um, uh, all the economic advisors. Larry Summers comes out of the woodworks to criticize Joe Biden's spending. I, first of all, that's help we don't need. Second of all, who asked him? Right. I mean, right. They're doing, he's doing more damage than good, isn't he? Well, he he potentially could have done uh, quite a bit of damage. I think we got very lucky in that uh, the economists in the White House uh, shut that down pretty quickly. Mm. They just simply came out and said, we disagree with Larry and here are the reasons why. And we're not going to let him. Um, you know, shake our our confidence in the ability of this package at this size to do make real improvements in the economy. And what Larry came out this time and said, though, was really kind of different for him. He didn't uh, lean into the deficit and debt rhetoric that he had leaned into in the past when the Republicans were trying to pass their tax cuts in 2017. Larry went on a big media blitz, you know, kind of same kind of thing where he very publicly took a position against the tax cuts. But he argued that if the Republicans were successful in passing the tax cuts, these are his exact words, that the U.S. would be living on a shoestring for decades to come because of the increases in the deficit. He went on to say that if we had a military uh, difficulty, he mentioned North Korea, if there was some sort of an event, we might not be able to defend ourselves militarily. Uh, if there was a next recession, a downturn, we wouldn't be able to respond with fiscal policy because the tax cuts would have eaten up all the money. And so, you know, Larry, obviously that was wrong because the Republicans did pass the tax cuts and coronavirus happened and Congress spun out multi-trillion dollar package one after another. And we had all the fiscal fire firepower because the deficits of the past don't constrain the ability of some future Congress 
Congress to spend. So Larry was wrong. But this time, when President Biden was pushing the $1.9 trillion COVID package, Larry didn't like it. And he didn't like the checks. He didn't like those $1,400 checks at all. He didn't like the increases in unemployment from the federal government's contribution, an extra 300 a week. Wow. He didn't like that. And uh, and maybe some other things. And he would have rather seen infrastructure than that package. And so he came out against it. But he said this time uh, he didn't say I'm worried about the deficits per se. He said, I'm worried about overheating and overheating is the way an economist says inflation. I'm worried it's too big. I'm worried that it's going to put too much money in people's hands and they're going to turn around as the economy reopens and everybody's going to rush out and try to spend that money into an economy that doesn't have the capacity to meet that higher demand by producing more output. And then you just outstrip demand, outstrip supply and you get an inflation problem. So. That's what Larry's been kind of harping on about for the past weeks and and months. And, uh, you know, so far, I think, um, fortunately, most people in positions of power have tuned it all out. Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Mm -hmm. said, listen, we might see some increases in prices in certain sectors. You know, maybe we'll see airline prices, car rental prices. Maybe it'll be harder to book a hotel. You know, we just don't know. Harder to get a table at a restaurant. We might see uh, and we probably will some price increases. But he said we with the Fed speaking for the Fed, he said we expect them to be transitory which means they'll happen and then they'll dissipate as the economy catches up, as supply catches up with demand. It's not going to become entrenched where we have this permanent increase, a spiral of prices, the kind that, you know, Larry's talking about really problematic inflation. So we got we dodged a bullet because normally he would have uh, had an outsized voice. He's not in a a cabinet position. He's not in a right. He's not in the administration. And so fortunately, the economists who are, Uh, in the administration, decided that uh, Larry was off base here. Now, didn't I read something in the last day or two uh, about Janet Yellen kind of pulling back and and putting up a warning sign where it wasn't uh, called for? Well, you probably did read something that suggested that she did that. And there are different interpretations of her okay. initial remarks. So she she spoke yesterday, I think, at the uh, forum with The Atlantic, and she made some remarks about the possibility that the Fed might have to begin raising interest rates in the face of higher inflation, inflation moving higher. Financial markets got jittery. Right. Uh, the you know Twittersphere went a little crazy. People started saying, "What is she doing? You know, she's not the Fed chair anymore. She's at Treasury. You, you you shouldn't be saying those things." Um, mostly because they're unhelpful and probably also not correct by many wow. people's readings. Right? Uh-huh. That people really many economists tend to believe that that uh, Powell has this right. will be transitory. The Fed has laid out a clear framework and they're saying we want to see unemployment fall. We want to see this economy recover. And we have no intention of raising rates for really quite some time, at least a year and a half, wow. maybe two years. So when she said that it did uh, create, you know, some ripples. And then there was sort of a walk back later in the afternoon at a different forum. She uh, clarified her statement and she said it wow. was not something that she 
either was recommending or anticipating. Wow. <laughs> yeah. When you're at that level, I guess anytime you say something, it yeah. can have ramifications. So Stephanie Kelton, about a month ago, just about a month ago, you wrote a, a, an op-ed for the New York Times. The headline reads, Biden can go bigger and not pay for it the old way. Um, and you were talking about that. This is good. This kind of spending right now is needed. It's good. And they don't have to fall for the old pay for thing. In fact, they didn't bring it up while the, they, the Republicans were in power. It's only when the Democrats are in power. Um, but the, Mitch McConnell said something interesting the other day. He's like, well, you know, I'm willing to make a deal and do something on infrastructure, but not if it rescinds the 2017 tax cuts or whatever. Um, question from the, the peanut gallery which is actually my husband. Can we rescind the MAGA tax scam and claw, claw back the money? Is that something we can do? I mean, if they're so concerned about $2 trillion, well, there's $2 trillion that is not helping the average American. And uh, just, uh, again, the billionaires got plenty wealthy, uh, wealthier during this pandemic. Like enough already. Give, give some of the money downstream. Well, the answer to the question is pretty simple one, I think. Uh, and it is this. Congress can do just about anything if it has the votes. Oh. Now, the reality here is that they do not have the votes. Not only do you not have a single Republican in the Senate who will vote, and probably not one in the House either. Nobody's going to vote to to repeal the right. entirety of the Trump tax cuts. That's a, that's a non-starter. Uh, never mind that you don't have any Republican votes. You... You don't have the Democrats. You don't have 50 Democratic senators who would vote to repeal in its entirety. That's out. Absolutely clear that that's out. Because remember, part of what happened in that legislation is that the corporate income tax rate went from 35 percent to 21 percent. Right. So President Biden has proposed increasing and not back up to 35 percent, but to 28 percent. Right. There are already a number of Democrats in the Senate who have come out and said, that's a no-go for me. I'm not going to 28. I'm worried about, you know, U.S. competitiveness and this sort of thing. Maybe I'll go to 25. So, hate to disappoint your husband, but it's not uh, the votes are, there are not nearly the votes. In fact, if anything, you've got Democrats pushing to restore SALT. Right. So that's mm -hmm. a that's a new tax cut that they want included in the legislation going forward. Well, so and, and let's explain what salt is, because that hurt everyday people who don't have millions of dollars you know, in the bank. This takes away their tax deduction for mortgage expenses and stuff. Right. Do I have that right? Well, it puts a cap okay. on the amount that you can uh, use to offset your taxable income, right? So the cap is $10,000. So if your state and local taxes, including your property tax, come in below that threshold, it doesn't hurt you right. in, in absolute terms, right? We could talk about relative, who benefits in relative terms, but you're still getting your full, you're claiming your full deduction. But if you live in a blue state like I do, and you have very high property taxes like I do, uh, this one hit you and restoring it would help you. But you are absolutely correct to point out that the overwhelming majority of individuals who would benefit from restoration of the SALT deduction uh, are people in the upper income categories. In other words, I saw a piece the other day, I think by... Um, well, I don't want to get it wrong. I don't think it was Citizens for Tax Justice. I think it was uh, Tax Policy Center. Okay. And I believe the bottom 80% of taxpayers will enjoy absolutely no benefit whatsoever from restoring SALT. 
So, and within that top 20%, most of the benefits go to the highest echelon of that top 20%. Who who may have gotten help from the tax cuts in the first place. Oh, they surely would have. Yeah. So this is just a double hit. It would it would help enrich them again instead of giving relief to the people on the lower end of the income scale who desperately need it. And that's what they're fighting back against. So, um, Stephanie, if, if, for people like me who are certainly not economists, I mean, you you break it down to a place where I can understand it. And I so appreciate that. And I, I recommend everybody read The Deficit Myth because you put it into terms that we can grasp. But if I'm trying to talk to some Trumper, who's like, they're going to raise my taxes and they're spending too much. And what what is the elevator pitch that the average person can give to somebody to disavow them of this ridiculous notion to say, no, this is what the government's there for. They can do this. And right now what's needed is stimulus. They need to get money to people who need the money right now. Well, look, first, the president has essentially made a tax pledge, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's not a Grover Norquist tax pledge, (laughs) but it is President Biden's tax pledge. And his pledge to the American people is that if you are in a household that is making less than $400,000 a year, you're not going to pay a penny more in federal tax. Right. So. That is a promise, right? So if it depends who these these Trumpers are that you're talking to, if they're high income earning Trumpers, they may have something to worry about. But the right. vast majority those aren't the ones that I'm worried about. Yeah. It's it's the low income, yeah. r- poorly educated people who don't know what they're talking about, and they Poor, watch Fox and they're they, they, they poorly they, right. educated people, many of whom struggle like. Uh, well-educated people, frankly, with childcare, finding affordable childcare, right? right? That's in the legislation, Uh, pre-K, making universal uh, education for kids aged three to five. So kids get a leg up on kindergarten and they start further ahead. They go further in school. They're less likely to drop out, more likely to go to college, more likely to have higher lifetime earnings. I mean, all the benefits uh, that come with that. There are all kinds of things in this legislation that will create jobs for and strengthen the safety net and uh, provide some added benefits and securities for, you know, a cross section of ordinary people who struggle with paying for college, with paying for childcare, with elder care, and thinking about how do I go back to the workplace if my you know parent is sick or I don't have uh, affordable health care and so right. I can't get a job because it costs me as much to put my child in daycare as I would earn if I were working. So it's essentially a wash. So I stay out of the workforce. And so there are just, you know, so many ways in which I guess, you know, if we could sit people down and walk them through what's actually in the legislation instead of what they hear when they're listening to Fox News, right. I think, you know, people would have a very different uh, reaction because they'd find Find out, wait, you mean I don't pay more, but I get these things? That sounds like a pretty good deal. Right. Well, it's definitely a good deal. If they could just get away from their worry about the word socialism, ooh, because they have a skewed uh, impression of what that means. Um, and maybe they can realize the benefits that some of the European countries that are democratic socialist nations give to their people. We could use a little bit more of that. And the, the two years of community college is a great start. Look, my kid didn't go to college. She hated school. She was not a good student. And I couldn't afford to put her through school. And the last thing I was going to do is demand that she go into debt 
to take classes that she didn't want to take in the first place. If there were two years of free community college, she would have gone. So it's it's opportunities for people who need it, and especially after the last year that we've been through, now is the time. So, um, all right, well, it looks like we're on the right track. I, Stephanie, I know you've got to go pick up a child, but, but thank you for uh, speaking English so that we understand this. I know that, you know, Bernie Sanders obviously has Joe Biden's ear. It's apparent in 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 how Biden has uh, acted over the last 100 days. Um, do you still have Bernie's ear at all? Do you are you still involved in any way in in uh, in trying to help them get through what we need to do? Well, I think that, you know, he's he's as chairman of the budget committee now, he will be shepherding through hopefully uh, another big package, probably in all likelihood through reconciliation. Right. I'm not working um, closely with him or his staff at the moment, but I am working with a lot of other uh, Senate and House offices. Oh, so I'm pretty, uh, pretty involved in a variety of different things right now, working on uh, legislation with other offices. Good. Well, I'm that, there if he knows I'm there if if and when he needs you. me. He knows that. Well, that makes me very happy. Stephanie Kelton, everyone should read The Deficit Myth, now available as a paperback. Follow Stephanie Kelton on Twitter. And and thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. I so appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Stephanie Kelton. I wish our government would use her more because she is so smart and so good at what she does. And I like to talk to her every couple of months to get a new injection of her knowledge and enthusiasm and belief that we can have nice things. We really can. We just need the proper people in Washington who understand it, who get it. So maybe buy your member of Congress a copy of The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton, after you read it, of course. All right. uh, With that, we come to the end of another edition of the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler. Uh, filling in for Brad and Desi this week while their <laughs> the area outside their home and studio is being torn apart with jackhammers. I understand it's very loud there today. So, uh, well, you know, we help out one another because that's what good people do. All right, enough of that. Uh, I will see you again next time. In for Brad and Desi, I'm Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com, echoing Brad Friedman when he says, good luck, world.